Well, good morning. Hope everyone's doing well this morning. I ask you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 136. Thank you, Pastor Kevin, Scott, praise team, choir, everything leading us in worship this morning. Psalm 136 is a longer psalm, one of the longer ones. Not too long, but I do think it is one that needs to be read and heard. So this morning, I want to begin as we start just by reading Psalm 136 together so you can hear its repetition. That's important as we consider Psalm 136. And I, because it's longer, I'm going to, I'm going to, not say anything funny right now or take time to make jokes. I'm just going to get right to it. Y'all can laugh at that. That was kind of funny. <laughs> but that's good. Y'all are paying attention. Good. Psalm 136 then says, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever the sun to rule over the day for his steadfast love endures forever, the moon and stars to rule over the night for his steadfast love endures forever, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever and brought Israel out from among them for his steadfast love endures forever with a strong hand and an outstretched arm for his steadfast love endures forever, to him who divided the Red Sea in two for his steadfast love endures forever and made Israel pass through the midst of it for his steadfast love endures forever but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea for his steadfast love endures forever <clears throat> to him who led his people through the wilderness for his steadfast love endures forever to him who struck down great kings for his steadfast love endures forever and killed mighty kings for his steadfast love endures forever Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel and his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And in this passage, I think it becomes clear to us that you have a great love, and that love is for us, and it is forever. And so, God, I pray that it is clear to every heart, that it is clear to every eternal soul in this place this morning, God, that not only did you make them, create them, give them all things they needed, but you also love them. 
And so, Father, may your steadfast love be known to us all. And may we, as we look to Psalm 136, be able to tell our story in the same way. No matter what happens, no matter where we are, no matter what we do, your steadfast love endures forever. God, we thank you. And we pray now that Christ is exalted through this and that we see your glory through your love. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember growing up in my home church, listening to sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. I was the preacher's kid, obviously, and so you were there all the time. Whatever meeting you were having, whatever you were doing. And so I remember growing up, and I spent a lot of those sermons, unlike you guys, kind of wandering off. I would look around, I would see people, see what they're doing, find out something that was funny, pass the time, if you will. It was my dad preaching oftentimes, so I already heard all those at home. And so I would do that and I would, I would kind of pass the time, but I remember staring, oftentimes getting caught up. Over the pulpit of my home church is a little sign that was made out of wood, stained, it had been carved, and in the carving they had painted the words white, and it simply said, God is love. Right over the top of the pulpit, God is love. It's a direct quote, as we know, from 1 John, 1 John chapter 4. Anyone who does not know God, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Straight out of the scriptures, we, we recognize that, we knew it, and even though it was there and I knew it was true, I oftentimes struggled with it. Thinking that through, God is love, what does that mean? How, to a young boy especially as I was growing up, what does love mean here? I believed it, but it seemed more complicated than just that. It seems more complicated than just God is love. Isn't he more than that? I mean, we can go through as we look through the scriptures and consider the attributes of God, all that he is. I mean, just think of them. God is infinite. God is immutable. That means he never changes. God is self-sufficient. That means he's independent. He doesn't need anything from anybody. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is wise. God is faithful. God is merciful. God is good. God is gracious. God is just. God is holy. We could have chosen any one of those to place on that sign, but they chose God is love. And part of our problem, I think, or maybe my problem, is that love has to do a lot of work, right? Love has to do a lot of work, especially in our language. We say that I love my wife, I love my wife, and I love cheeseburgers. There's a clear difference here. Seriously, honey. You say, I love, I love those shoes, or I love that sports team, or I love the Lord. Do you see the difference? Obviously, love has to carry some different weight in every way, and so sometimes it's hard, maybe for my mind, to wrap around what do we mean when we talk about love? What do we mean by this? So when we say God is love, it has to be something than just how we define it, right? It has to be some way that we have to know what does that mean. Oftentimes, what we do, though, is we try to make God's love into our own image of love, what we think about love, how we might love. We try to make God's love into that, but we cannot and we must not do that. For the Bible defines what God's love is for us. God's word does. 
And what I want to do, because obviously God's love is at the heart of Psalm 136. I mean, every single verse has the phrase, his steadfast love endures forever. And so let's understand love for just a minute according to God's word. God loves everyone. God loves everybody. It's seen in his general care for them. The fact that the sun rose up this morning is a testimony of God's love for each and every person. God's love is seen in in these ways, in his general care over us. The fact that you are alive today is a demonstration of God's love. No matter who you are, God loves you. He loves you because you're created in his image. And through that, he blesses everyone in his care for them. He opens up his hand and he provides all that everything needs, right? That's what the word of God says. And so God's love is seen for everybody. But the Bible is clear that there is a special love that God has for his people. Now, this makes sense to us, right? I love all of y'all, but I love my wife differently than all of y'all. There's a special love I have for her. I love all of you, but I love my children deeply, more deeply than all of you. There's a special love we have. And so in the scriptures, it tells us this. While God loves everyone, there is a special kind of love that he has for his people, for his people. For his people, we recognize what God's love is. And the scriptures help us. God's love is redemptive. God's love is redemptive. Think about John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? It was his love that caused him to go into a place that was unlovable in many ways and give his son so that they may have life. God's love urged him on into redemption. In fact, if you read Ephesians 1, it tells us in love, he chose us before the foundation of the world. It was his love that he he sent his son for us. It was in love that he called us out of darkness. In fact, if you continue in Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2 tells us that, that though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, though that we were disobedient according to the course of this world, we were doomed like the rest of mankind. We see that in, in, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. But then verse four, it says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. What caused God to come to me who was dead in my sins and give life to me? It was because of his great love. It's because of his love. Now, we need to make sense of this in a little bit. For John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world, then shouldn't we be like God? We should be like him. But, But 1 John tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. Why is this? It's simply because of this fact, that God's love is redemptive. He can come to it and save it and redeem it. Our love is participatory. When we love something, we can't redeem it. We join in with it, right? We join in with what we do. That's what we mean by we love it. We, when we say we love something, it's us partaking in that thing. We participate in it. But God's love is redemptive for us. So he can redeem the world. We cannot participate in the world, right? He saved us out of it. God's love is redemptive for his people. It's his love that he came to us to save us with. It's his love. But not only that, God's love is unconditional for us. Now, what do we mean by unconditional? Now, we all understand what that means. This, it's not based on any action that I do. 
It's not based on anything that I can accomplish. It's really not based on any attribute that I may have. God did not look at me and go, whoops, I, I made Josh bald-headed. I better love him, right? That's not what he did. There's no attribute in me. There's nothing I can offer. There's nothing special about me that he can look down and say, I'm going to love that person in a way that saves him and redeems him. There's nothing. It's an unconditional love. There's no condition that I can add. And because it's unconditional, that means nothing can separate me from his love, right? Because he loved me no matter, not because of who I am or what I've done. He loved me because he wanted to. He saved me through his love. And now nothing can separate me from it. Because it wasn't on any condition I had. If it was some condition I had done, then I could stop doing that or I could do something else and cause God to pull away his love. But his love, as Romans 8 tells us, cannot be separated from us. He saved us, he redeemed us by his love, and he keeps us by his love. It's unconditional. It's unconditional. So in that beautiful passage in Romans 8, where nothing can separate us from the love of God, not height, not depth, not life, not death, nothing can take us away from him. Why? Because it was based upon a God's love, not us and who he is. But remember this, because I often think that this teaching about unconditional love is abused for us. Because we think that if God loves us unconditionally, then we can live how we want to. I can, I can go and do what I want to do and then come back to God and say, hey, you got to forgive me. It's unconditional, remember? But remember, the scriptures teach us very clearly, if you say you love God and you do not keep his commandments, you are a liar. Why? Because God's love poured into us does not cause us to run away from it, but it draws us into it. And we seek to honor him and glorify him because he first loved us. His love compels us to follow him. And as we seek to follow him, we find out something else about his love, that God's love is corrective. Hebrews chapter 12, verse five, quoting Proverbs. The author of Hebrews says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son who he receives. So not only has he redeemed us by his love, and that love is unconditional and nothing can separate us from it, now through his love, he's correcting us as we walk after him and follow him. And so that correction or discipline comes in because he's a faithful father to his children. And so when we step off the path, he disciplines us or corrects us to get us back on the path. When we do the wrong thing that he's told us not to do, he disciplines us or corrects us to get us right again. And even when we haven't necessarily done the wrong thing or anything else, he does things in our life so that we can be purified, made holy, and be brought safely to him. His discipline has a purpose, and it all should. Discipline without a purpose is just pain, right? Discipline without a purpose is, is just heartache. That's all it is. But his discipline has a purpose. He's not only saved us by his love, keeps us in his love, but now he helps us through his love to walk the right path so that we can be brought safely home to him. So we can be made right. This is all his love. So you see the Christian life is following this whole path. It's God's love who saved us. It's God's love who keeps us unconditionally. And it's God's love who corrects us as we walk. We all know this. We've used this line before. I'm doing this. I'm going to discipline you because I love you, right? And it's true. We don't believe it's true for a long time. 
Sometimes we still don't, right? But it's true. If you're doing the wrong thing, that wrong thing can hurt you. That wrong thing can bring pain to you. You know, if your kid is sticking his finger in a light socket, you probably want to discipline them for that. Or they could end up electrocuted, right? Don't do that, son. It would be unloving to leave them in it. And so it is, as the author of Hebrews is saying, for you to be walking and stepping off to something that could be dangerous for you, something that could lead to disaster for you, something that could lead to pain or heartache, for the Lord to leave you in that and not correct you or discipline you would be the height of not loving you. But he loves you and he brings you safely back to the right place so that he may bring you home. Now, sometimes that safety may hurt. Discipline may be painful. But as the author of Hebrews says, it's only painful for a season. All of this is God's love. So when we seek to understand God's love, this is what we need to understand. That we who are God's children live with this reality every moment of every day. The redeeming, unconditional, corrective love of God is our resting place. He has saved us by his love. He keeps us by his love. And he brings us safely home by his love. All of this is true here. When we read this in scripture, all of this is the case. He is for us. Oh, how he loves us so much so he's not gonna leave us. He's not gonna forsake us. He will always be there. And that love never stops. It never ends. In fact, as it says here, it is steadfast, means it is, it is hard. It is true. It's never gonna waver. It's never gonna move. It's always gonna be in the same place doing the same thing. No matter what may beat against it, it's always in the same place doing the same thing. His love is steadfast for us and it endures. In other words, whatever may come to it, it's always there. Whatever tries to take it, it's always there. Whatever tries to remove it, it's always there and it endures for ever. So what I'm saying this morning really becomes fascinating for us, right? We're talking about the God of the universe loves us with a redeeming, unconditional, keeping us to the end kind of love. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. His love keeps us there. So this steadfast, unwavering love is at the heart of what Psalm 136 is getting us to. And all of it should, just as it says here, lead us to worship. The heart of worship is praise and thanksgiving. We're thankful for who God is, so we praise his name. That's what worship does. And when you understand the love of God, then you understand that God has done absolutely everything needed for me. He has loved me when I was unlovable and redeemed me, made it his own. He keeps me in his love and nothing can separate it. So therefore, all things are working together for good for those who what? Love him. And in keeping me in his love, he is gonna make sure I get safely home to him. His love is what keeps me and holds me all the way throughout. This love is worth praising God and thanking God for. It's the heart of what Psalm 136 is about. All of it leads us to give thanks. And the reason we give thanks and we worship is because we recognize that God has done everything needed to save me, redeem me, and bring me safely home. He's done it all for me because of his great love. A.W. Tozer, writing on God's love, says, self-sufficient as he is, he wants our love and will not be satisfied till he gets it. 
Free as he is, he has let his heart be bound to us forever. God's love is active, drawing us to himself. His love is personal. He doesn't love humanity in some vague sense. He loves humans. He loves you and me. And his love for us knows no beginning and no end. And the reason why we are here today is because God has loved us. The reason why we rejoice and we worship is because he loves us. This becomes the very heart of all of it. As the psalmist says, we give thanks to God for who he is, right? And so the first three verses, he is good, he is the God of gods, he is the Lord of lords. We give thanks to God simply for who he is. And to to go back then to his attributes for a second, we remember that God is not composed of component parts, if you will. There's no mercy component matched with a justice component, matched with a knowledge component, matched with a love component, matched with a holiness component. God is not in parts. All that is in God is God. So to speak of one aspect of God is to invoke all of his character at one time. In other words, you don't know God's mercy unless you understand his justice, holiness, love, and all those things at the same time. You don't understand who God is just by knowing one piece of him. All of it goes together. And he is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Why is he this? Because of think of his attributes. He is justice. There is no other offer of justice. He's the one who defines it. He is holiness. There is no other look for our place for us to understand holiness. He's the one who defines it. He is omniscient. There is no other who knows all things. He is the one. He is omnipresent. There is no other God who is omnipresent. He is the one. All of these things, he is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He's all of them and no other God is. That's him. As Jim Hamilton, one commentator says, Psalm 36 forces us to the conclusion that God's total wisdom, love, power, presence, justice, and all else are exercised as he shows his love to us. In other words, how do we know God is just? How do we know God is merciful? How do we know he's holy? How do we know all of those things that he is? It's because he has shown us through his love. The love defines it all for us. It becomes the display of it. Listen, love is not God, but rather the very meaning of love derives from who God is and how he acts. We know what love is because of who God is. We know what love is because what he's done for us. We know what love is. He defines it. We don't get to define what love is. God has defined it for us. That's what love is. How do you know what love is? You look to God and see what it is. And so I love my wife. I love my children. I love you. Why? Because God has first loved me. And he's demonstrated what that love means and looks like. God defines love. There may be no greater thing that our society needs to hear now than that truth, that God defines love. And he becomes the picture of it for us. And that's what Psalm 136 is saying. This is his love. He defines it. And everything we see is shown to us through it. Shown to us through it. And understanding this, we come face to face with this kind of love. Again, all we can do is worship. Give thanks to the Lord. Because his love is demonstrated in who he is. It's also demonstrated in what he does. 
You can think of his works then. And that's where he goes next in this next stanza, starting in, in verse four. It's demonstrated in who he is, his nature. He's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. He's good. But it's also demonstrated in his works, what he has done to him who alone does great wonders. There is no other who does great wonders. It's this one who does it. To him who by understanding made the heavens. He's the one. The first place it goes to is creation itself. The creation account of the scriptures is not just found in Genesis 1 and 2. That's where we find it first. But you read all throughout, the scriptures constantly revert back to creation and how it was made by God speaking everything out of nothing. How God does it, it becomes the foundation for the rest of all of scripture, the basis for the rest of all of it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And once, my friends, you believe that truth, the rest of scripture is easy to believe. In fact, that's it, really. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Once you believe that, everything else makes sense, right? If he's the creator who made it all, then he gets to set the rules. He gets to determine who, who lives and who does not live. He gets to determine what's right and what's wrong, what's just, what's true. He is the epitome of all of it. He establishes it all. And when we read this, we recognize when he created, there was no battle waged with other gods. That's what the other ancient Near Easterns did. They thought, you know, the gods got in heaven, there was a fight, and in this cosmic fight, things were created and things happened and creation just happened. That's what many in the world still believe today. But that's not what the text says. It says he made it out of his understanding, he made the heavens. He spoke it out of nothing. To him, he spread the earth out above the waters. He's the one who put the great lights in the sky, the sun, the moon, he did it all. It's God who has done this. And there's no fight here. There's no battle. Not only is there no battle, there's no large-scale catastrophic explosion of matter either. In fact, as we read this, we recognize that it's God who has created everything out of nothing. He did it all. He did it all. The creation account in the scriptures is quite different from what the world offers nowadays, right? Why is that? Just for a second. It's because if you can remove God as the one who created all things, then you can step out from under his authority. If you can remove him and say, God didn't make it, it was some catastrophic explosion of matter, it was these other things that happened that brought this thing. If you move God out of this, now you don't have to answer to him. But if God is the one who made everything, if God is the one who spoke everything out of existence, then he is the supreme being that we do have to answer for and we are under his authority. And so it comes to a question of who do you believe on this? By faith, as the author of Hebrews says, we believe that God created everything out of nothing and he is the authority by which we must answer. And here in Psalm 136, that's exactly what it's saying. It's you who did this, God. And why did he do it? Not because he was needy. God didn't create everything because he needed it. He didn't make the earth and the stars and the skies and all these other things. He didn't make us because he needed us. Remember, he's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. Ultimately, the only answer we can give according to the scriptures, he made it all because he wanted to, right? But not only that, he didn't make it for sport. It wasn't as if God was saying, hey, let's show you. Let me show you what I can do. You know what I'm saying? God didn't make this stuff, uh, uh, even in that sense, God didn't make everything so we could simply look at him and go, God, he's awesome. I mean, that's what we do, and that's right. We see his marvelous works. It's kind of like when I cook, you know? When I cook, I expect everybody to tell me how great it is. 
And, and if they don't, I'm going to ask them to tell me how great it is. Because when we make something, that's what we're doing. We're showing off. We're showing what we can do. We're providing. We're doing something that's, that's in Psalm 136, the amazing thing here is it doesn't point to that at all. It says God created everything because he loves us. How incredible is that, right? Just think about that. Dr. Fant preached just a couple of weeks ago from Psalm 19 and talked about the glories of heaven, and we know it. You see the pictures, you see the majesty, you see the beauty, and obviously you think how great God is, how glorious he is. But if that's all you think, then you need to know that there's another reason he made that beautiful sunset. There's another reason he made this glorious sunrise. There's another reason he made the majesty of the heavens and the earth. Psalm 136 says he made all of that because he loves you. He wants you to enjoy all of that because he loves you. You see a sunset, surely you say how glorious God is. But at the same time, the child of God will look and say, he loves me. He loves me. That's what the psalmist is saying. He created everything for his steadfast love endures forever. Not only do we see it in what he did in creation, we also see it here in what he's done through redemption because he hearkens back. I haven't used that word hearken really lately, but I did right there. He looks back. You can use it in a regular sentence this week. Come and report back to me. He looks back to what God did with Israel when they were bondage in Egypt. It, it, he tells us, he says to him, he struck down the firstborn of Egypt, brought Israel out from among them, strong hand, outstretched arm, divided the Red Sea in two, made Israel pass through the midst, overthrew Pharaoh and his host. To him, he led them through the wilderness. He's talking about this. Why? Because this picture of Israel being brought out of captivity becomes, especially in the New Testament, a glimpse of what happens to each and every one of us who are brought out of the bondage of sin. That Israel was given the deliverer, Moses, who brought them out of captivity and bondage and led them through the wilderness, right? We've been given one who was greater than Moses, Jesus Christ, who brought us out of the bondage of our sin and our debt, not just bondage in Egypt, but our sin and death. He brought us out of that bondage and he is leading us safely home. He's our great deliverer. And what the psalmist is doing here is reminding them that it's not only God who is, is, has created everything because he loves you, he saved you because he loved you. He redeemed you, as we talked about before, because he loves you. Promises were made in Genesis 12. And those promises, as Psalm 136 says, were kept. And so we see the promise-keeping, saving God, right? And he keeps his promises. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. He keeps those promises because he loves us. He demonstrates his power, dividing the Red Sea, conquering Pharaoh, takes out our enemies. You got the king as they move into the land. You got the king Sihon of the Amorites, Og of Bashan. He conquered them. He takes the enemies out and he leads his people safely into the land that was promised for them. And why did he do this? Because his steadfast love endures forever. He loved them. He redeemed them because he loves them. This story here then points us to our own life. Why did God redeem us? Because he loves us. Why does he deliver us out of the bondage of sin and slavery? Because he loves us. God made the world because he loves his people. God delivers his people by attending to every detail of their salvation. 
from bringing them out of the land, walking them through the sea, walking them through the wilderness, bringing them safely home, taking care of their enemies, providing all of their needs. He took care of every detail for their salvation. Why? Because he loves his people. Because he loves us. As we look back over history, so much has happened. You can look through time, but the point of Psalm 136 is hammered home over and over again. Through it all, whatever it may be, whatever may happen, his love endures forever. Which brings us to the final section of this psalm. Starting in verse 23, he remembered us in our lowest state. He, he brings it on to us, right? Not only is he, we, we love, he demonstrates his love through who he is, through what he has done, but also how he provides for us every day. His present care over us. He remembers us in our low estate. He does not forget about us. Though he is the God on the throne, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, he does not forget about us because he loves us. He rescues us from our foes. He loves us. And he gives food to all flesh. Whatever we need, he provides He loves us. In this, we see that God's love for us isn't just in the past, it is in the present. His love for us is now. And just as we've talked, he's redeemed us, he keeps us, and he's gonna see us safely home. And that's what the psalmist says. And why does he do all of these things? Because he loves us. The Lord writes the story of his people and at its heart is the unmovable, steadfast, forever love that he has for us. We rest in that love. No wonder the people, as we sing this psalm, sing it over and over again, for his steadfast love endures forever. For his steadfast love endures forever. For his steadfast love endures forever. Why? Because at the very heart of their story, they know whatever has happened, whatever is happening, whatever will happen, is all grounded in the love that God has for them. And that's all they have to hold on to. Have you thought about your own life then? writing your own story, maybe writing it this way. Because if you're a child of God, then you can. I was born to two loving Christian parents for a steadfast love endures forever. Raised in the gospel, right? For his steadfast love endures forever brought up to believe the truths of God's word for his steadfast love endures forever. Met my wife in college for his steadfast love endures forever. Again, that love carries a lot more sometimes, you know what I mean. Had beautiful children for his steadfast love endures forever. Was called into the ministry for his steadfast love endures forever. And the pastor at Taylor's, just to get to the end, for his steadfast love endures forever. Think about your own story. Start writing it out like that. And quickly you may become like me, overwhelmed. That though in my low estate, he has not forgotten me. Though I'm nothing before him, he still loves me. I deserve nothing from him. He still came after me, pursued me when I was lost and undone and brought me out of my sin and my darkness and brought me safely home. Why is that? Because his love for me. And he can do the same for you. If that's not your story, it surely can't be today. Why? Because he is hungry for the love of his people. Just as Tozer said, 
He wants you. He wants you in his life. He wants to be with you. He wants to love you. He wants to care for you. To spurn that love is the, the, the dumbest thing, the most foolish thing anyone could ever do because this love is where redemption is found. This love is where hope is grounded. This love is where the surety of the end will come. If you want heaven, you cannot spurn the love of God. If you want Christ, you cannot turn away from his love. And who would want to? God, I pray you're not. But I pray your story's the same as mine. And at every point and at every turn, no matter what it may be, no matter what it is, you too can say, for his steadfast love endures forever. You too can say the same thing. And for all of eternity, gathered around the throne, in my heart I'll still be singing, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are and what you have done. God, your love is so rich and so great, and I pray that there's no one here today that does not know it, is not resting in it. And God, if they're looking for love in other places, help them to know that that's just counterfeit. It's not real and it's not true. It cannot last and it will not endure. But the love that you offer, Father, the love that you offer endures forever. So rewrite stories right now in this place. Oftentimes we're blind to our own life and our own story that you're writing. But God, through your spirit and work right now and through the power of your son, Jesus Christ, rewrite those stories in our hearts and our mind so that we know whatever turn, whatever thing, whatever happens, we can say your steadfast love endures forever. God, may no one leave here without knowing and resting in that love. And through that love, God, help us to love one another, to pursue after you because you first loved us. God, we thank you for this time and this opportunity. May we not waste it. For your glory, we pray. Amen. If you're here today and you need to rewrite that story, you maybe you don't know of the love of God, but today you, you know that it's there and you want it. We're happy to meet with you, to talk with you. Come down front. We'd love to hear about this, and we'd love to tell you more about that steadfast love. If you're here today and you don't have a church home, we want to love one another together, right? So we would love to have you be a part of us. I'll be standing here ready to receive anyone that would come. Let's stand and sing together.